our reading from today for today is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. So if you want to look that up on your phone or anything, feel free to do so. Do not judge. Oh, it's in the bulletin too. That's easiest. (laughs) Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jessica. She prayed for Mark Hordyke. Mark Hordyke is coming from New City to you. Treat him and Siobhan and those kids well. They are incredible, lovely people. He's interned with us the last few years, and he is a very gifted guy. You are privileged uh, to receive what God has placed into his life uh, for you. So benefit from that. We're looking at uh, something from the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. And in this sermon, Jesus has talked a lot about how to deal with people. But Jesus doesn't just go at the surface of things. If you go and listen to the preacher on the Mount, preach preach the Sermon on the Mount, keeps going to the heart. And it's no different here in this passage. Sometimes these Uh, particular examples get preached separately, which is good, but he's using all of these together to get at the point of what has become known as the golden rule. Do to others as you want them to do to you. I had a conversation with my neighbor a few weeks ago, and I'd been thinking about this passage because we had been working through the Sermon on the Mount at New City in Hamilton, And he said something really interesting. We were talking about current events, various uh, movements that have popped up in our culture over the last couple of years, and he was uh, just kind of bemoaning it, which I thought was interesting. This is one of my most liberal progressive neighbors that I have, and we've talked, debated, had great discussions over the years that we've known each other, but this is someone who's always pushing the envelope to make it even uh, more progressive in all kinds of ways. And he said something very interesting. He said, with all these movements that are coming up, suddenly what they are intending with very good motives to help people is actually, I feel, driving people apart. 
And he noted, you know, we're a society that is known for tolerance. You know, if we hold up one card, if our prime minister holds up one card in the world, what does he play? We are a tolerant people. And you listen to most Canadians, Christians, non-Christians, otherwise, what would we say about ourselves? Well, we, we've actually done a fairly good job in relative terms compared to many cultures in society in tolerating people. People who are diverse and different, and this is a good thing because we have people from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, people from all kinds of different language groups, people who look different than one another because we're from different races. And even if we look the same as one another, often we come from radically different cultures. Tolerance has been a great thing in all kinds of ways in Canadian culture. But he was making the point someone who perhaps values it far above most was saying it's not enough. And he said something that really struck me because most cultures have had something similar to the golden rule. Not quite, but similar. There's a ring there that you would recognize. They would say, don't do to others what you want, don't want others to do to you. Similar to what Jesus is saying, but flipped. So don't do what you don't want done to you. And he, was, he said, and he just noted that, not think, he wasn't thinking about the golden rule, but he was saying that's really what tolerance is. Don't treat others the way that you don't want to be treated. But he said the problem is, is it can lead this tolerance to everyone just go to their own corner. I tolerate you, but I don't want too much to do with you. And he noted our society is becoming polarized. And he goes, even with my friends on these things that I have, I have talked about and, and advocated for, suddenly they're being taken so far to the extreme in certain circles. And he goes, I, I don't even feel I can say anything because I know I'm going to get judged for it. I was like, wow, that's interesting. The, the circle and the group who most wants to get rid of judging someone who's on the inner circle of this is saying, if I actually say anything different than what the group is saying, I know I'm going to be judged. Fascinating. And he just didn't know what to do with that. Jesus here is practically teaching us how to live in right relationship with one another. And the pinnacle of this he is saying is do to others what you want them to do to you. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. Listen to others the way you want to be listened to. This is, he's saying, it sums up all the teachings of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. This brings it together, and it calls us to bring kingdom life together and put it into practice as God's people those who have been invited into the kingdom of God by the preacher of this sermon, the one who claims to be the king of God's kingdom. He's trying to give you practical rules and ways for relating and being in relationship with one another, with family, friends, co-workers, neighbors. Jesus gets really practical here. And I think he gives us in these verses... Some principles for relationships, and I'd say there's three here. Principles for relationships, that's verses 1 to 6. He then gives us the power for relationships, that's verses 7 to 11. And then he gives us a picture for relationships, that's the golden rule in verse 12. 
So principles for relationships are three principles that I'm going to draw out here for relationships. The power for relationships and then the picture for relationships. First, the principles. The first principle is this. Be aware of the danger of judgmentalism. Now, often people quote this verse, and I've had this quoted to me in so many contexts that I, I can't tell you. You've probably uh, heard this as well. You may have even used this, but many people actually have no idea where what they're saying comes from. You know, you can't judge me. Don't, don't judge or you'll be judged. Most don't know that they're quoting Jesus himself here. Though often, by not understanding what he's saying in the bigger picture, they're actually often misusing it and misquoting it. It's one of the most famous sayings, as are many other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, yet it's misquoted because many are using it to say, you can't make any judgments about me and my life. I can live any way I like, any way I please, and you have no right to say anything to me. Isn't that often how it's used? In fact, often, let's be honest, we, we've probably thought or used it ourselves that way. We're like Tupac Shakur or Miley Cyrus, only God can judge me. And judging by the way they, they live, they don't believe that he's too interested at all either. Don't judge, lest you be judged. It's used as an image of tolerance to promote kind of a moral relativism. Everybody figure out for themselves the best way to live, the best way to relate to one another. Yet the interesting thing is if you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and then even Matthew as a whole, or even better, the New Testament or a whole, best, all of Scripture as a whole, Jesus and God has a lot to say about judging. He's not saying, let's just throw out all discernment altogether. That's not his point. What he's getting at in this verse here is something different. He's not saying that you have no ability to judge between right and wrong, better and best. He's saying Beware of a spirit of judgmentalism in your life because it's deadly. And it's deadly for those who are part of the kingdom of God. Christians, the church, judgmentalism is a problem, Jesus is saying. It points to a self-righteous attitude, kind of a sense of superiority. And if you look at these verses, he's saying for the standard that... For you will be judged by the same standard by with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. So he's saying be careful here. Not that you can't exercise discernment between right and wrong, but be careful of your attitude in it. Because it's very easy to have a spirit of judgmentalism, a spirit of self-righteousness creep into our lives in the way that we relate to one another, and that is very problematic. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to apply that kind of standard to someone else, be very careful because expect it to be coming back to you. And ultimately in Scripture, not just from that person that you're doing it to, but ultimately by God Himself. You see what this judgmentalism does in our life, this self-righteous attitude is doing, it's taking God off the throne and putting ourselves there, saying, I'm the ultimate authority here. 
And I'm not only judging your actions here, I'm judging your motives. I'm judging your heart. And Jesus is saying, be careful with this. Paul gets at much the same thing in Romans 14, verse 10. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Be careful of judgmentalism. You need to distinguish between it. But judging is actually an important part of living a a fully human life. So if we're not supposed to be judgmental in a sense of self-superior and self-righteousness, what is Jesus getting at? Throughout the sermon, he's saying you need to judge between what is right and good and what is wrong and not very good for people. We're actually called to be wise judges, to distinguish between good and evil, and ultimately to be a part of restoring what's right in the world, to bring good to Dundas, wholeness to the city of Hamilton, to bring something better than what is. Judging is actually a good thing when done with the right heart attitude, and that's the crux of the situation. Jesus is always going to the heart. And just like my neighbor is saying, we actually do judge. The issue is, how do we do this? What's the attitude that we're going to do things with? Because there are things that are better than other things. In this culture where we don't like judging, it's fascinating to me to turn on the television because if you flip through the channels, what is one of the most popular genres of shows? Judging shows, actually. Now, you might not categorize them that way when you first think, I'm going to go watch a judging show right now. But you flip on the cooking channel, and what do you have? These cooking competitions. And, And what's going on? You've got a panel of judges and experts here who know how to cook. I mean, they can bring it in the kitchen. And why are they there? Because they know the difference between good cooking Okay cooking and cooking you should never, ever be left alone with privately. Let's get that rid of. The whole point of the show is to judge between good cooking and excellent cooking. Or think of, of, of American Idol or The Voice or some of these music or talent shows. What is going on? You've got a panel of judges who know and understand music or entertainment or some aspect of life. And there's people coming up and saying, I actually want to be judged. I want to be approved of for what I am doing. So am I doing a good job? And these people come and say, you know, they're, they're known to have the ability and discernment to know what is good. What is the best flavor and texture? What is the best melody and harmony and rhythm? What resounds in the human heart when we hear it? These judges have something to say. And we like it because we're we're having the ability now to distinguish between these various types of cooking or, or music or entertainment or something else. But note the difference between the kind of judges. If you were to go up for one of the entertainment ones, singing or entertaining, 
Who do you want sitting at the table judging you? Do you want one of the ones who are always nice? And you go, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. They're always going to be nice to me. That, that's not helpful completely because I actually want to grow. I actually want to be spurred on a little bit better to, to, to get better at this, even while I want affirmation at the same time. But neither do we want Simon Cowell. The right kind of judge makes all the difference. We need discernment in judging, and we need to discern our own heart attitude in this. Do we want a Simon Cowell, or do we want a gentle judge who both tells us what we need to hear, but does it in a way that builds us up and moves us further along in life? Be aware of the danger of judgmentalism. The second principle that Jesus points out here is found in verses 3 to 5. Would you look at it with me? Verse 3 says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye. Hypocrites. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will clearly see to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. The principle that Jesus is getting at here is deal with your own faults first. It's not put away all discernment and judgment, but actually, before you actually approach somebody gently and even with the best attitude, you better deal with your own faults first. You need to actually take a look at your own soul, your own relationship with God, the own way that you relate to others, your own morality, that's very important. Before you start pointing the finger at somebody else, take a good look at your own life and your soul. Jesus is giving a very comedic picture here to make a strong point. Now, I used to be a carpenter. My dad's a custom cabinet maker, finishing carpenter. I grew up from the time I was little, little, working in a, in a situation where there was a lot, a lot of sawdust. And periodically, you would get a splinter in your finger or sawdust in your eye. And every single carpenter on the crew, you know, carried a, a special, very sharp set of tweezers and often a very sharp knife set aside strictly for the purpose of removing slivers. And sometimes, it wasn't just a matter of pulling it out. You actually had to do a little self-surgery. Cut this thing open, remove it. And times that you're like, I cannot do this. It's too deep. It's stuck in there too much. And you go to somebody else and go and ask them to remove it. But who did you want removing it? The guy with the steadiest hands, the sharpest knife, actually. That wasn't this dull thing slicing you open in places and ways that you didn't need to be sliced. And someone who actually had experienced this and walked this before. Because the way they reproached it is far different than someone who is just like, sure, I'll take a knife and get rid of this for you. Even more so when you've got sawdust in your eye. You didn't go to someone else and go, oh, gee, I see you're crying too and you're weeping too. You've got sawdust in your eye. I got sawdust in your, my eye. Let's, let's help each other out here. It's not the way you did it. You went to someone who was clear-sighted who had no sawdust in their eye at that point, and you didn't come to them and say, have you got the knife or the tweezers? No. Is do you have the little wash bottle to gently wash this out? 
You needed somebody clear-sighted, someone with a gentle touch who could see and discern properly. This is what Jesus is getting at. See, often we have microscopes for everyone else's problems. We look at them even from a distance and go, oh, I know what's going on in your life. And the reality is we, we probably don't in the same way that we think. Jesus is saying before we actually go to somebody else and begin to deal with their faults, let's be honest about our own blind spots. And that's what that beam that he's talking about is. I mean, it's a comedic picture. Before you deal with the little speck of sawdust in your eye, deal with the beam that you're carrying around that's got you off balance, that has a massive blind spot, creating a massive blind spot in your own life and in your own soul. And self-righteousness, if nothing else, even if you look at your life and I'm not dealing with any major sin issues, I'm not doing anything, and you want to go and begin to go after someone else's sin, Self-righteousness, let me tell you, is its own blind spot. You cannot deal steadily, surely, and in a way that brings hope and healing to someone else's life when you've got this massive blind spot in your own. It requires the Spirit of God to begin to deal with your own sin, to, to take this beam or even this speck and begin to wash it away cleanse it out of your life, begin to bring healing and wholeness back to your life as He you, as you works repentance and faith into your life so that you can actually be used in someone else's. Do they need health and, health and healing? Yes. Do they maybe have a blind spot? Absolutely. But Jesus is saying, deal with your own faults first. Again, this is exactly what Paul gets at right after he gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He begins immediately into chapter 6, and he says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted, and then carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Be aware of judgmentalism, deal with your own faults first, and then third principle is this, be discerning in offering help to others. Now, it's this very, very interesting verse, verse 6, look at it if you would. Jesus says, don't give what's holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. This is what I believe Jesus is getting at here, and there's a lot that you can say. Entire sermons have been preached about this, but let me get at this, what I think Jesus is getting at in the big picture. He's saying, discern and judge rightly and wisely. Dogs and pigs, though both were considered quite unclean in the Jewish context, in the area that Jesus was actually preaching in, it was a very Greek area. Dogs and pigs were very common sights. And these domestic animals, if you had one, you were responsible to feed it. And Jesus is saying, are you going to feed what's inedible or edible? See, because a dog and a pig get hungry. Are you going to feed them 
what's sacred to a dog or pearls to a swine? And he's saying, no, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. These animals will trample it. They don't know what they're getting. They don't see it as edible. And what happens, they're hungry. And if they look at this and go, this isn't meeting my needs, they turn it and look at you and go, but you might. Bite and devour. In Matthew 13, it's the other place that Jesus, just chapters later, that Matthew gives another example of a pearl. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, he gives the illustration of a pearl of great price. This pearl of great price is an example, an illustration of the gospel of the kingdom. And in this story, a man finds a pearl of priceless value. And what does he do? He sells and gives everything away until he's got the ability to claim it for his own. The point in that story is that the king has come to save us by his grace. He gave everything to purchase and redeem us with his own life. Now consider the contrast between a pig and a person, and I'm going to use a little snippet of Tim Keller here. For the pig and the dog, they're concerned with their immediate needs. They bite if they don't get what they need. They're, they're really just concerned about a consumerist view of religion, a consumerist view of spirituality. Does God meet my immediate need? And if you begin to speak in them without actually being discerning about how you do it, they turn on you. Whereas a person who's been, been the Holy Spirit's been working in their life, they begin to see the gospel as beautiful. Of what Jesus has done is as amazing and, and wondrous. They see the, the holiness of God in their own lostness. When you give them what's sacred and precious in the good news of Jesus, they actually begin to see it for what it is. And instead of turning on you, begin to actually turn to God in repentance and in faith. What's Jesus getting at here? I think it's this. He's saying you must discern when you begin to speak to someone about what's going on in their life. You must discern the pace that God is working at in their lives. Do they see this good news that you're presenting for what it is? And he's not saying don't ever present good news, but are they ready for it? Are you working at the pace of the Holy Spirit? Are you working along with him? Or are you just trying to, on your own agenda, in your own particular uh, point of view, just forcing it down their throats? Now, I think all of us have probably had the experience, if you're not a Christian here today, you've probably had the experience or heard about someone who's spoken to someone about Christianity, and they've been very turned off by it, and been invited into a number of activities with them on a very regular basis, doing life together, talking about real things, getting the opportunity to actually talk about the work of Jesus in their lives. There was real sharing going on between the bigger group and one-on-one. -on -one. Another lady who we knew in the neighborhood went to another Christian church. She didn't really know this group, but invited some of them to hear her testimony at a church. And it was a very, very strong kind of turn or burn moment. Now, one of the ladies actually responded fairly well, but everyone else did not. 
the interesting thing, we who had nothing to do with it, they looked at us and went, you're just like this lady. You know what happened to us? We were rejected from all the social events. We were turned on, disinvited, because this other person, actually, I don't think, and I think she had the best motives, and I celebrate her courage and her boldness because we need more of it in our culture for Christianity. But she didn't actually know where they were at, hadn't built relationship and trust, and you know what happened? It actually set back, I think, the work of the gospel in some of those people's lives. Now, some of you are going, phew, what the preacher is saying here is I don't need to share Jesus unless I really, 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 really get to know these people and we really, really, really have a lot of trust. No, I'm not. Here's one of the things that I and some other pastors across this country and across North America are noted, and I'm working with denominational leaders, not just my own, but in numerous denominations. In my role as a church planting coordinator, here's an observation that we're making. Many in the younger generations have said, you know what, your old ways of sharing the gospels, whether the four laws or whatever it is, no longer work, and there's some truth in that. There, there's different issues, there's different things going on in the culture. Doesn't mean they never work, but it incredible job often of building deep relationship. But here's the observation: you're never getting to the gospel. You're never actually talking about Jesus. You're never actually dealing with the, the brokenness in their lives insensitive pushing the gospel on someone and never getting to it actually end up in the same place without people really hearing who Jesus is. Both are wrong. What Jesus calls us to do is to speak the truth in love, to really hear and listen and to get to know people. And the gospel is this. We turned on Jesus when he came to us, when God, the one person who was full of love and truth and grace, we turned on him as humanity. And yet God on the cross hung there, the one person who did not have a blind spot in his, in his life. There was no plank or even speck in his eye. Yet he did what he did to invite us into relationship. And instead of condemning us, he voluntarily died to gently and fully restore us, and he invites us now to receive him. And he was raised from the dead to actually restore us to right relationship with God. That's the message we need to share wisely, sensitively, but we need to get there in relationship as we discern carefully the lives of people. So how do we do this? And just so you know, these points are not of equal length. These two are very short now. We do this by looking at verses 7 to 11, the power for relationships. Turn with it. Turn there. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him. Ask, seek, knock. I think we need to do this in two ways. We need to ask, seek, knock with questions in the relationships that we're at, and ask, seek, knock in prayer. First, we need to ask, seek, knock in relationships. We really need to listen to where people are at. Francis Schaeffer used to say, if I had an hour to sit down and share the good news of Jesus with somebody, you know what I would do? I'd take 55 minutes to ask good questions, to really listen to their answers and to the heart behind them. And then I would take five minutes to very surgically speak the gospel into their lives in the way that I have heard that their hope needs to be restored, the brokenness that needs to be there. Ask, seek, knock. There's a progression there. You're going deeper and deeper into their lives in a place that you're saying you actually need to be invited in. But you're continuing to press into there. You're finding out where they are at spiritually and the beginning to speak the gospel prayerfully, wisely, discerningly to those places where they are open and praying that God would be stirring and moving and working in their hearts. A neighbor of mine, not the same one I was talking about before, but a few doors down, has been very closed to the gospel. We've talked about some very vague spiritual things, but that's always, we get anywhere close to that and kind of the conversation gets shut down. So I've always just gone, okay, okay, God, that's, you know, I'm going to keep praying for this guy. And I do regularly pray for him and for his partner, for some of the people in his lives in his life. A couple weeks ago, he came to me on the street. We're just chatting. We've got a number of shared interests. And he said, you know, it's been a really, really hard week. My, my mom just died. And I was like, oh, because a year ago, my, my mom had three aneurysms and a stroke. She's still alive, but she's not the same person. He was like, I want to talk to you about that because I think you can relate. And we, we spent maybe 20 minutes or so just on the street talking about this. And at the end of that, he said, you know what, uh, we, we should talk about this a little bit more because this has really shown me as I need to get back to spirituality. There's something missing in my life. And of course, as a Christian and a pastor, what I do? <laughs> Let's talk. No, no, no. I prayed about it in that moment. God, do you want me to push this right now? And I felt a very strong check. I just said, David, let's keep talking. Let's keep talking. Because I sensed there's some openness, but he was cautious. A little open to the brokenness and hurt that he was feeling in his heart and life. But asking questions as we've continued to talk on the street, just really asking questions allows us, instead of this place of judgmentalism where we come up over somebody, it's actually coming alongside or even underneath coming under them and saying, tell, tell me about your heart. Tell me about your perspective. Tell me what's going on. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy says this, it is the way of the request of asking, which naturally progresses into kingdom praying. It is a way that actually works because it draws people into the kingdom rather than into the web of our devices and plans for them, and it creates the community of prayerful love. See, as we actually come and ask good questions with the intent of listening and not just advancing our own agenda, even the best, 
I believe it leads us into prayer because that's where Jesus goes. He morphs the two into one thing then because we ask, seek, knock in prayer then. Because we need God's power. We need God's love. We're going to relate to people, whether within our Christian circles, whether within our families, or within the wider community that God has called us to be salt and light into. We are going to need God's grace and wisdom. And you know what prayer does when we bring it into those places and into those people's lives? It's inviting God into the conversation. It's no longer just you and that person but you've invited God to begin to speak and move and work. That means we need to pray for our hearts and we need to pray for theirs. Pray for our hearts that we would not just come insensitive, but humbly recognizing there's nothing that they have done, are doing, or will do that I am not capable of myself and maybe even done. And there, but for the grace of God, am I. It leads us into a different place. It leads us to repentance. leads us to a place of examining those specks and logs in our own lives. And instead of being judgmental, it leads us to actually be broken over our own sin, which allows us to be humble and compassionate when we deal with theirs. And it gives us the ability to pray for wisdom and discernment in how to deal with them. And the good news of this is God's a good father and he promises to answer these kind of prayers. This leads us to the final very brief point. Verse 12. And the word is so or therefore. Therefore, because of all these things that Jesus has given us for relationship, do to others what you would have them do to you. Because this sums up the law and the prophets. What Jesus is giving us here is something that goes so far beyond merely tolerating people, merely just allowing people to go to their own corners and be civil but ignore one another. It actually, if you're going to do to others what you want them to do to you, it actually calls you to action, doesn't it? It's no longer just not doing something which allows you to be passive and in your own corner, it actually means you have to engage your imagination and you have to engage that person in relationship. It begins to call us to learn to love as Jesus loved, to be gracious as Jesus is gracious, truthful as Jesus is truthful, all for the sake of serving that person and bringing wholeness and healing that only Jesus can bring into their lives. And this means that you, you, for the sake of the relationships around you, whether in your marriage or with your children and your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your city, it means you need to experience the gracious love of God who treated us with this grace and love in Jesus. Let's take a moment to pray. Spirit of God, we come to you, Lord, and we confess, whether as Christians or non-Christians here, that we do not always think the best of others. We often have a sense of self-righteousness and superiority in the way that we treat others, and we do not often deal with our own faults first before we deal with others. And when we do, often it's not very sensitively. So, Spirit of God, would you work in us, we who claim the name of Jesus, would you stir in us a sense of love and compassion
a spirit of repentance and humility so that we can be sent out to bring the good news of Jesus into our lives and relationships and into the city and the people who desperately need to meet you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.